I don't want to go to my deathbed one day and, you know, and think all I did was suffer. I want to think I learned some lessons and I passed on those lessons. So hopefully somebody else who is still here is now learning from that and they can pass on their own lessons. And all we can really hope for at the end of the day is just to make the world a little better than when we came in, right? So, I mean, that's the goal. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is the journalist and human rights advocate, Rowan Shatay Knox, author of the 2019 memoir, Love Lives Here, a story of thriving in a transgender family, as well as a new memoir that just came out this year, One Sunny Afternoon, a memoir of trauma and healing. Rowan Jatay Knox, welcome to Kobo. Hey, thanks for having me. First off, a quick note to listeners. There are some heavy topics here, including suicidal ideation and generally having tough times with mental health. We'd love you to stick around, but we understand if you need to skip this or come back later. Rowan, you occupy a rare place among authors, being a writer of two memoirs to your credit um, without having had, you know, many, many, many decades of life in which to uh, in which to write about. <laughs> so I think before we talk about your new book, One Sunny Afternoon, could you tell us a bit about your first book, Love Lives Here? Sure. So Love Lives Here was written about my family, which if you had asked me in early 2014, you know, Rowan, tell me about your family, I would have said, well, we're a mom and a dad and three boys. And the whole shape of my family in some ways changed very, very quickly. In February of 2014, our middle child came out as transgender at the age of 11. A year and a half after that, my spouse, who I knew as my husband for uh, 18 years at the time, came out as a trans woman. And society got it pretty right um, in terms of like how how our family and friends embrace these changes, how we all grew together, how we supported the people who are transitioning and how people supported our family as a whole. And so I decided to write a book about that with the with the approval of my family members. So I wrote about the five, soon to be six of us at the time, because we ended up adopting a teenager right around the end of the time that I wrote the book. But we, we, um, I just wanted to write this happy, positive story about trans people. And unlike so many books that have been published over the course of the last number of years, this actually was a happy book. Like this is, this is a book about a loving family that stays a loving family. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were there are some hard parts in yes. it for sure. There are some times when maybe somebody is dealing with being misgendered, which is you know when somebody goes out into the world and and the world does not perceive them the way that they see themselves. So there's you know a part where my wife is called sir, and that's really hard for her on that particular day. There there's some transphobia in there. There's some homophobia, but overall, it really shows what happens when you affirm and support trans people in the right way. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, um, and, and, and society kind of all, you know, everybody together helps raise people up, then they just get to lead happy lives. And so then we come to your new book, One Sunny Afternoon. And 
it opens with you in an emergency waiting room. And can you take me through that opening and why you wanted to set that scene for readers at the very beginning of the book? That scene is the hardest part of the book to me. That was, that was when I hit rock bottom. I was in a really bad place and I felt like if I took people there first and said, uh, okay, here's the worst of it. All right, now we all got through that. All right, let's talk about what happened before. We're going to come back to here a little bit, and then we're going to go out the other side, and things are going to get better. Um, I was in a really bad place then. In, and, and that seems like such a strange thing, because it was just a few months after Love Lives Here was released. That was an instant bestseller. It became a number one bestseller. I was at the height of my career. I had all of these accolades. Um, you know, the, the, most of the trans community have really latched onto this book as a very happy, positive one that they wanted to share with people. It was just this great time. And I was falling apart inside because I had so much I hadn't dealt with yet. When I first picked up One Sunny Afternoon, the jacket talks about you taking abuse and criticism, especially on social media as a writer and activist because you wrote love lives here. And and I admit, when I first read that, my first thought was anti-trans protesters was, you know, because social media has collected this hair trigger community of anti-trans people. But the heat that you took for writing that book, at least at first, it didn't come from that direction. Your critics were members of the trans community accusing you of betraying your trans child and partner. Can you... Can you talk about what people were angry about? I think there were a number of things that people were angry about. It was sort of coming from all different directions. Mostly, I think at the time I identified as a cisgender woman. And so the idea was that I was essentially being a stage mom who was appropriating my child's story and exploiting them for fame. Mm -hmm. which couldn't have been further from the truth, but that was what was being put out there and that I was controlling my entire family and that they should have been the ones to write these stories, not me. Um, and, and there was, there was a, there was a lot of, a lot of commentary about how I was essentially taking space away from trans people telling their own stories. And I understand the criticism. I do, I do, I do think that, you know, criticism, healthy criticism is a wonderful thing. Constructive criticism mm -hmm. is a very healthy thing and it's something that we should all be able to handle. But it stopped becoming constructive. It stopped being constructive after a while. It started to snowball because that is what happens on social media. Mm -hmm. You make a handful of comments, other people join in, and then you have to add in that it was the beginning of the pandemic everybody is home. A lot of people are very stressed mm -hmm. and they're dealing with their own traumatic event that is unfolding, you know, in society as a whole and around the world. Nobody knows what to do. None of us have lived through this, you know, yet. And so I think there was just a lot of misplaced anger. Yeah. And so people were finding targets as, as we used to call them on Twitter or, or X now, I guess. Um, you know, the main character of the day, except that I mm -hmm. wasn't the main character of the day. It just kept coming up again and again and again. You you talk in the first few chapters about being almost continuously bullied as a child. Um, 
when you were faced with that online criticism from people that you didn't know or who didn't care to know you, did it take you right back there? Yeah, that's the thing about trauma is that if it's not addressed and it's not it's not healed, then it just comes back over and over and over. And so this felt to my nervous system, to my brain, to my heart, it felt like the same attacks that I had when I was a child, which got very dangerous and very violent sometimes, and certainly made me feel very, very alone. And when it is coming from you know, when the call is coming from inside the house, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was coming from, I was, I was already, you know, a self-proclaimed member of the, of the queer community at that time of the LGBTQ plus community. Um, so to see my own community turning on me felt like one of the most unsafe things I could be going through, especially when it went on for days and days and days. And you hear people saying, yeah, that you know, the social media realm is its own realm. You can turn it off or turn it, uh, tune it out. But as an activist and as a journalist, you kind of have to live there all the time, or at least it's hard to step away from it. When that anger gets directed at you, though, what makes it so challenging to tune it out or or set it aside? So one, for sure, my work, right? Mm -hmm. I had to be online and I was able to, I I left Twitter as it was called at the time. I left that pretty much the day things started. I said, you know what? I'm out. This is a very hostile thing. I've, I've seen this play out so many times with other people. It never ends well. I'm, I'm going to leave this place. But then. On, you know, I it, it sort of just kept following me everywhere I went. The other thing, though, is there's there's I mean, factor in a pandemic and in the pandemic. I mean, what am I going to do? Right. I'm, I'm we're, we're in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have children living at home with me and my wife and I don't really have anyone else to talk to. So online is where I was getting all my socializing. And then there was this sense of what are the terrible things that people are going to say or do when I'm not there. Mm-hmm. And if I don't see them, how will I address them? If I don't see them, how will I address them, right? If I just let that go, I know how rumors happen. I know that they snowball. I know that somebody will say one thing and the next thing, you know, it's like a game of telephone and it's something completely different at the end. And if you're not there to go, hey, wait, wait, that's not true. That's what I felt at the time. Now, mm-hmm. now I feel completely different. But I, I felt very strongly that if I wasn't there to try and manage the narrative of the horrific things people were saying about me and my family and my life, that it wasn't, you know, it was just going to get so bad that it could harm my children, that it could harm my my spouse. You know, I just didn't want that to happen. You use many different metaphors to talk about the criticism that came your way, an avalanche, a torrent, a deluge, none of which sound pleasant. Um, <laughs> did, did anyone in your life have a sense of how deeply it was all affecting you at the time? I think my wife, Zoe, had a bit of an idea of what was happening. She was worried about me and my best friend as well was was concerned and would check on me every day. I don't think anybody knew how deeply it was 
opening up that wound, though, Mm -hmm. that yes, I mean, anybody who was subjected to what I was subjected to at the time, the things people were saying that that would be really hurtful to anybody, I think. Um, even the the most thick-skinned person, but when you have the trauma living underneath that, at you know at the end of the day, I was you know this five-year-old, this eight-year-old, this thirteen-year-old, um, you know, just trying to survive this what felt like a schoolyard, except that the schoolyard was thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and I was waking up to hate mail every morning, and I was you know I I couldn't go anywhere without somebody giving me a hard time, and so it was. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone could understand what, you know, just how badly I was suffering. Mm-hmm. One thing that really resonated with me as um, as the parent of an LGBTQ kid, as the parent of a trans kid, I know there are prejudiced people out there who are going to come at me. And, and I'm up for that because it feels like as a parent, it's part of your job to stand up for the people that are trying to, you know, tear down your kids. And they're idiots anyway. So like you can that you can discount. But I'm more worried in so many ways about making a misstep with people for whom I'm trying to be an ally and with whom I'm trying to be an ally. Um, It seems like the the personal penalty is higher and and so I, I'm interested, you know, why why have we become more worried about the criticism of the people who are supposed to be our friends than the people who we know are definitely our enemies? Um, and is that is that something that you that you think about or struggle with? No, oh, it's so much worse when it's people who are supposed to be on your side, so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, and and. Some people are very unforgiving with mistakes. I am not unforgiving when people, you know, when people when people make a mistake. I get it, right? And I, 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 I work. I will work with somebody and gently correct them, and you know, and we will move mm-hmm. on from that. But not everybody is like that, and I understand how people get very nervous sometimes. Um, it there, but there, there is this ability for me to just kind of write off what, um, what people who I, I, there are some very bigoted people out there (laughs) and I deal with them every single day. I've been doing this work for almost 10 years. And, uh, yesterday was a particularly volatile day for me in terms of, of people sending me flat out threats. It was a very bad day and that's never okay. It's never okay for people to do that to anyone ever, but I'm about as used to it as I can get. When it is people who are, you know, my 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 people, my community, the people I fight alongside uh, with, the people I celebrate with, the people I, um, you know, I I just I just walk through this life with who understand me and understand my family, and when when you know that's a small community, and when that mm-hmm. community splits apart because there's infighting because there's you know there's there's these disagreements it hurts my heart in a whole new way and when i make a mistake i feel terrible now the problem with online though is when somebody makes a mistake we often dump a pile of shame on them Mm -hmm. and shame and i mentioned this in the book 
scientifically is a terrible learning tool because the difference between guilt and shame, you know, if I, if I say make a mistake and, and I realize I make a mistake, I might feel guilty, right? I, I did something wrong. Okay. Well that, you know, I'm going to try not to do that wrong thing again, but, and I'll be receptive to learning. But if I make a mistake and people just, you know, jump on me and tell me what a terrible person I am for doing that, um, that will shut down my learning receptors. I'm not, I'm, I'm going to feel like I am bad. Not that I did something bad, that I am bad. And, and, and it, it cocoons us, it consumes us. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're so, um, uh, unlikely to be able to learn anything from the experience. All we feel is this terribleness. So I, I think that when that happens, you know, when it's, when it's something that's important to us and the people who are important to us, it can create that shame and we have to learn to make our way out of it. And so you're, you're bearing this, this avalanche of criticism that's coming your way. Um, as all of this was going on, and because this was the result of a, of a book that you'd written, at any point did your publisher pick up the phone and say, Hey, we uh, we see you're really getting worked out, like worked over out there. Um, did uh, did anyone reach out to check on you? So nobody did reach out to me right away, and uh, I think in large part that was because everybody was just very focused on the first wave of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the people that I worked with in the publishing industry, they weren't watching my online presence, right? I mean, the, the thing about publishing is you write a book and everybody's working with you throughout the book and then the book gets released and then everybody's working with you for the promotion of the book and then they're on to the next person, right? Right. I mean, that's just the nature of the industry. Mm -hmm. So I don't think anybody was really focused on me at the time. It had been several months. Um, And the book was a success. And the book was a success. And Mm -hmm. it was doing very well. It it continues to do well. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I don't think anyone really thought of it, right? Um, And it 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 was a small but vocal group of people, particularly vocal in one specific place, right? Right. Which was Twitter. And so as... As you mentioned, aside from the criticism, it was how it was hitting um, trauma from your past, and then the kind of the set of thoughts and ideation that started to spin up from that. And you describe in harrowing detail the the train of thought that had you nearly taking your own life, and and that gets us back to the hospital where we saw the beginning of the book and and where you are asking for help and recognizing that you're in trouble and sitting down in front of a nurse and saying you know i'm i am a risk to myself one of the feelings you describe is a feeling of failure as a mental health advocate that you've that you found yourself in this place and and that came out of a what I found to be a very moving exchange between you and the nurse who was admitting you. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about, about that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a tough, that was a tough chapter to write, first of all, because it was the first chapter I wrote Mm -hmm. before I wrote anything else. I sat down and I wrote chapter five. I was, I, I wanted to take readers right into the heart of what it felt like. And I believed that the further I moved away from it, the less I would be able to explain it. So, uh, that was, yeah, I'm, I'm glad I wrote it. I'm glad I wrote it the way I did. 
Uh, I I did not enjoy editing it because I had to keep going back there, but mm-hmm. <laughs> it was important. And in that moment, I first walked into the hospital, uh, and I spoke with the. I guess the the person at the front desk who was wonderful. And then I saw the triage nurse and I cannot remember her name. So I gave her one of my favorite names, which was Amelia. I just called her Amelia. I was like, oh, Amelia's great. You know, that that just seems like someone who's going to be nice to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was really great. And I'm sitting there and I'm talking to her about how I'm feeling. And she's being very, very understanding. And I say... I just feel like a complete failure because I'm a mental health advocate. And as a mental health advocate, I shouldn't be getting this low. And she just kind of looked at me and she was like, that's, that's not, no, that's not true. Like, you know, that's, that's not how it works. You know, she, she, she said it much better, much more eloquently than that. But essentially it was telling me, you're not a failure. You're somebody who knew that you weren't well and you went to get help. And that's what you do. And she said one day, You're going to be able to take this experience and use it in your advocacy. You're going to be able to use it to help other people. And it won't be right now. Right now you got to take care of yourself, but Mm. later you can use it. And I loved that she reminded me that I could use it later because I found strength from that. And I found strength from her compassion. But yes, I think... I am, I'm a big self-care proponent. I take very good care of myself in terms of, um, you know, just, you know, exercise and, and, and time to myself and creativity. And I, I try very hard to do those things. But when I wasn't well, it's like the brain, it's a very, depression's a very insidious um, you know, problem. And it, it, and it gets, it gets in there and it, it just, it just fools you and it lies to you. And so I didn't think I was worth that. I wasn't worth going. I, I had to have a real talk with myself about going to get help because I wasn't worth getting help. Mm-hmm. And, and just be, you know, and I could very easily see that if my best friend was in front of me and said, uh, I, I feel like this, I'd be like, we need to take you to a hospital and it's going to be okay. But me asking for help was somehow shameful. Me taking antidepressants was shameful. Me getting a trauma disorder diagnosis was shameful. And I had to work through all of that. You say that you, understood your family loved you and that you felt undeserving of that love that you know they may have loved you but it didn't matter that sense of deflection is so important for people who've never experienced this uh to hear because i think we all believe that we can like love someone back from the brink of a crisis um but that, as you say, those lenses, whether they're of, you know, of depression or of another disorder, are so powerful um, that they're they're capable of filtering that out or changing it to something that doesn't provide the level of help that uh, that someone needs. Was that a detail of your mental state that that only came to you later, that that sense of how much depression can color um, your perceptions, can, it can kind of change the inputs? Or was that something that you kind of had in the back of your head at the time that it was happening to you? Well, I was fortunate because I, <laughs> sounds funny to say I was fortunate, but you know, this is the thing about life. We learn from the difficult things, right? I had postpartum depression after my son was born. I was in my early twenties. And so I knew what depression had done to me back then. I knew that it had, it had shaped how I saw things. And so I was able to take that 
and and move forward with it, right? I had another instance, and I talk about that in the book a few years before um, I had my, my breakdown, essentially, um, where I was talking to a friend of mine and the way that I was speaking, she, she mirrored it back to me and said, does that sound healthy, right? Like, I think you should go talk to your doctor. And so I had those experiences, but when it got to the point of suicidality, when I was having those thoughts and making those plans, it was, it was like a switch. And I think it, you know, where it was just a switch flicked and everything kind of went dark. And I was like, well, this is what I need to do. Clearly this is the only solution coming back from that, starting to heal. The doctor was great. Uh, the psychiatrist I had, she explained that, you know, having a trauma reaction that strong, being in that type of mental health crisis where you're suicidal, it's a lot like a brain injury. And I had a concussion before. And if anyone's had a concussion, it can take weeks or months or even years sometimes to feel okay again. Mm -hmm. And so she said, you have to sort of treat it like that. Your brain has just, you know, it's like, it's like some stuff short circuited essentially, and you have to give it time to heal and come back online. So yeah, as things started to get better, that's when I started to realize, oh, wow, that's, that's really not that wasn't, I wasn't behaving like myself, but yeah, in the moment there was a part of me and, and I, I, I discussed that back and forth a little bit in the book where it's like, you know, maybe my brain is lying to me. No, it can't be, but maybe it is, but no, it can't, you know? And so there was a, a right. bit of a push pull. There is more than one mental health practitioner in this book with unorthodox methods oh, um, yes. and, and possibly dubious credentials. <laughs> and there are enough that that isn't even a spoiler. Um, but can you give me an example of some of the people that you encountered as you were trying to find care that was helpful for you? Oh, yeah. There, so here's the thing. I, I wrote that part of the book, um, you know, and I, I don't want to give everything away here, but there mm -hmm. is quite a turn of events towards the end. And the reason it's towards the end is because when I wrote the first draft of the book, I hadn't found that out yet. So there, there is something, I find out something about someone very close to me that just rocked my whole world and sent me back, right back into therapy. When we are vulnerable and people see that we are vulnerable, I want to say, first of all, it is a gift to share with the world when you are vulnerable, right? I know that me sharing that I had been in this dark place, that I was, that I was finding the right supports, um, that I had been to the hospital, that has, I've had people flat out come out to, come up to me and say, you know, you helped save my life. And I don't want to take that credit. I think they saved their lives, but my story helped them get the help that they needed. So mm -hmm. it, being vulnerable is a wonderful thing. However, being vulnerable also means that sometimes there are people who will take advantage of you. And there are a lot of people out there in the world who claim to be mental health professionals who are not, who claim to have credentials that they don't, who, who claim to have methods that nobody else has that can help you. And it is very hard to walk or very easy rather to walk past the red flags when you are not well and you're very focused on just getting well. Mm -hmm. And and yet at the same time, you say very clearly these methods are not for everyone, um, but that you still got something valuable out of each one. And 
do you think that's something that would be true for everyone? Or are you especially good at gleaning benefits from random sources? (laughs) I do not recommend that everybody just go see to see whoever and entrust themselves with them. But I do tell this story in the book early on of this one doctor who would see who was an actual medical doctor, but also did therapy. Um, And I, you know, in this back room of his clinic, um, it was, it was, it's, it's, it's a trip. It's something. Anyway, I was, you know, 21 years old and had no insurance and this was going to be free. So I was like, all right, that sounds good. I'm going to go do it. Um, One of the things that he did right away was he had me write down, you are not a victim 1,000 times. I am not a victim 1,000 times. Like Bart Simpson on a chalkboard, except I had to come back with like a notebook full of I am not a victim. And it is I would not recommend this in any capacity as a therapy but I did it and I did learn something. I did learn I'm not a victim in fact. So I don't know if that was brainwashing, but whatever, it doesn't matter. It has really helped me in my life. Mm-hmm. I, I do recognize that I have been victimized sometimes, but I do not identify as a victim. I'm not, I am not, I don't live as a victim like I used to. However, um, I am, yes, somebody who goes, well, this terrible situation just happened. Um, I better find something good out of it or it's just going to have been a waste of my time. So I do tend to to search through the wreckage of whatever has happened in my life and go, what can I excavate from this? What can I make, you know, into a positive? What have I learned from this so that maybe I don't repeat the same mistakes again? And I think when we can do that, we we don't we, we build wisdom. We build wisdom right for ourselves that we can take moving forward. This book describes how things that hurt you as a child, as an adult, you know, kind of turn back up sometimes to hurt you again years later. But you also talk about your need to please people, um, to make people happy, almost as the mirror image of that hurt. Can you talk about that impulse and what makes it such a bad mix when you add social media in on top? Oh no, people pleasing. Oh, so I describe myself as a recovering people pleaser because I absolutely am and I will occasionally fall back into that role. Um, and thankfully I have people in my life who will be like, Rowan, are you people pleasing right now? Rowan, are you doing this just because you want to make me happy? And I'm like, yes, Maybe. I am. Yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's yeah. And I mean, it's, it's cool to want to, you know, make somebody you love happy or whatever. Right. But at, at the constant expense of yourself, when you're constantly giving of yourself for other people, that's, you know, that can be very draining. And the problem with social media is I learned very early on that if I, if I just tried to please my bullies and if I just tried to please the people who didn't seem to like me very much, if if I could get that to work, I would be safe that day. Nobody would be, you know, stealing my my trading cards. Nobody would be beating me up at lunchtime. Nobody would be, you know, so I I would be all right. And there was there was so many things I didn't talk about in the book as well that would that would that would that would lead to you know me wanting to be a people pleaser. But with social media, I mean, you're literally talking about millions of people. <laughs> And so here I am, you know, I'm like composing a, you know, an Instagram post and I'm thinking to myself, I, you know, okay, but I don't want to offend this person and I don't want to say this. And it's cool to check yourself, right? You want to make sure you're not being an insensitive jerk, like absolutely. But 
we're never going to make everybody happy. And I was literally trying to do that every single time I posted. And that is, that's so unhealthy. I can't do that. And even when I wrote Love Lives Here, I mean, I agonized over some passages in that going like, oh, don't, don't, don't say the wrong thing. Don't offend anyone. Don't. And it, it didn't matter in the end because some people were still angry with me, right? So at the end of the day, what did I learn from all that? I learned you cannot make everyone happy and that's okay. Let it go. In the, in the course of your, your various engagements with therapy, did, did you ever explore just the, the chemical roots of that, of that relationship with social media, those kind of cascades of dopamine and, and serotonin that you get from, you know, likes and the cascades of cortisol and, and other things that come from feeling under attack? Oh, yeah. I would say there have been points in my life where I have had an addictive need to check social media because it can be very addictive because it can be very validating. Mm -hmm. It can be very validating. The other thing it can do is it can be very numbing, right? Like it's really easy to escape into that and not have to think about problems, think about life, think about the things that are staring you in the face that you need to get done. You can kind of just, you know, just go, go, you know, go check Instagram, um, go flip through TikTok over and over and over. I have, um, you know, while writing the book, especially, I did a lot of research into why we behave certain ways on social media and also why we go on it so much. So I, I did learn a fair bit. And what I've also learned is um, quality over quantity. So mm -hmm. now I'm a big proponent of I'm not on social media all the time. I, I do use it daily. I use it in short bursts only when I have something to say, only when that's something. And I, I always examine why am I saying this? Right. Why, why am I sharing this? Is it to help other people? Like, does it have a good intention? Mm -hmm. Um, is it just to make me feel good about myself? Sometimes it is. Sometimes I just want to post like a selfie where I'm like, my hair looks great today. I mean, that, and that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. But I have to know why I'm doing it. And then I don't just sit there and watch the likes come in because it's not healthy. It's not healthy. I can't get my validation from outside of myself. It has to come from inside of me. Because if I allow all my validation to come from outside, then all of the negative that I get, and I get a lot of that too, I will also have to take in. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just choose one and not the other. Other people's opinions either matter a whole lot or they don't matter at all, right? So I have very few people in my life who I'm very close to and their opinions matter, but that they know the entirety of me. But the people on social media, look, I love when people say, Hey, Rowan, you look great today, you know? Um, but, but I mean, it's that thank you, but I have to believe I look great today. And that's why I posted the picture. Learning something, benefiting from something painful. That's a major theme in this book. And there is a rhythm to it that became apparent to me um, towards the end. And so not to spoil anything, this is not a book with one rise and fall. Uh, <laughs> nope. Um, and is that something that you sought to capture in the book? Or did you only realize how much you'd learned in those falls as you wrote the story? I really wanted to show people that the bad times in our lives are not wasted. 
because we all go through bad times. Some of us go through more than others, I think, but overall, we're all going through hard things at one point or another. And sometimes I see people living with a lot of regret. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very close to somebody who's trans who says, you know, oh, I wish I would have transitioned sooner. Um, and one day in therapy, she learned, you know, to look at what she had learned by transitioning at the time that she did, what were the benefits of it, that sort of thing. And she was able to pull from that and really start to embrace that she could transition at this point in her life, at that point it was in her 40s, and be really happy, right? And 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 not feel like her whole life was wasted. And so that's to me, I don't want to go to my deathbed one day and, you know, and think, uh, all I did was suffer. I want to think I learned some lessons and I passed on those lessons. So hopefully somebody else who is still here is now learning from that and they can pass on their own lessons. And all we can really hope for at the end of the day is just to make the world a little better than when we came in. Right. So, I mean, that's 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 the goal in throughout this book you are, it's kind of a container for some of the most difficult things that have happened to you. You know, you, you know, you talk about um, hard things that have happened to your childhood. You talk about sexual assault. You talk about bullying, um, you know, physical harm. Um, how did you handle those memories as you were writing? You know, I'm, I'm imagining like, you know, Homer Simpson where he has that box that they use to handle the radioactive material with the, with the, <laughs> you know, with the, with the gloves and the tongs. Um, you know, how do you put those down on paper and then work on finding the best way to describe them? Because it's not like they just come out. Then you have to, you know, craft them and massage them and, and make them the best version of that hard memory that you can. How do you do that without getting hurt all over again? Well, you don't, first of all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I, I think maybe there are some people who can. I definitely found it challenging. It was, it was challenging for me to write those difficult points in my life. Mm -hmm. But it was also really important to me to do it because I heal a lot through helping other people. I really do. I, I heal that way through, you know, I'm, I'm telling this story and I'm telling it hopefully because it will help you feel less alone. And maybe that's going to, you know, you can, you can then help someone else feel less alone. That's always, that's always the goal. And so with that as well, I didn't tell everything. And I said that right at the beginning there, I have lived through a lot that I didn't say because everything that I used in the book, everything I shared in the book has a purpose. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do, you know, what, what they often, you know, like, like that sort of, that what they often call trauma porn, right? Like this idea of, of I'm just going to make everyone feel sorry for me and bring everybody, you know, into this horrible place and make them feel terrible. And no, it's not about that. It's about here's an experience that happened. Here is how I worked through that experience and lived through that experience and have learned. And this is what I've learned. Were there other authors who you turned to as an example, as an inspiration, as you were deciding how you wanted to tell your own story? I have great respect for Dr. Brene Brown, mm -hmm. who, for those who don't know, is a shame researcher. She, she researches shame and vulnerability. 
Um, so she does, she does in some ways very different work than I do. She's very smart. She's, she's, uh, she's a great person. And I've listened to a lot of her talks and I've read pretty much all of her books. And one of the things that she does is she weaves very seamlessly personal story into education sort of goes back and forth through her own life experiences or others life experiences. And then she works the, 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 the data she's collected and, and, and the learning pieces in, but it's such a pleasant read. It's never dry. And so when I am doing this kind of work, and I, I say this as somebody with a high school education, so no, I'm not a doctor. Um, you know, when I, when I do it, I, I try to do the same thing. So I do, I do a lot of gathering. What is it that I want to express in this chapter, in this passage? And how do I do it in a way that feels like I am sitting across from you at a table, just talking to you as a friend. Mm -hmm. And that is when people come back to me all the time and say, they'll be like, Rowan, it sounds like you're just telling me a story. And I'm like, yes, exactly. Because that is what I'm trying to do. That's all I have to give this world. Seriously, the only thing I have to give this world other than I make bagels sometimes is I, you know, I, and, and, and I post pictures of my dog. The other than that, the only thing that I have to give this world is my lived experience. So this is my lived experience. This is what I've learned surrounding that experience. This is what others who have lived this experience or researched experiences like this have to say about it. And that's it. So, you know, I will never be Brene Brown. Um, Brene Brown is Brene Brown, but I, I, I can be me and sort of just do this, you know, friendly, gentle, empathetic approach to teaching. You got some apologies towards the end. How did that come about? I did get some apologies and, and I have a I have a wonderful story about that as well. So a few weeks after everything went down on social media, I got an email from one of the main people, the most vocal people, who was who honestly gave me the best apology I've ever received. Nobody has given me a better apology ever. Uh, it was, it was honest. It was very centered on me and how it affected me. Um, you know, this person did explain what was going on with them at the time, but did, but, you know, and, and but not as an excuse as just saying, I just wanted you to know this was happening in the background, you know, um, and then I received another apology a few months later from another one of sort of the, you know, the people who, who was very vocal. Um, and they were both great apologies. I then more recently ended up speaking at the same event as one of these people and the first one. And we have become friends which is the coolest thing ever. So we, we just had another sort of heartfelt talk in person, you know, some tears, some hugs, some reconciliation, you know, and, and it, and it just, it has become this, this friendship, you know, and I, I, we're not best friends, but definitely somebody that I want to hang out with again. Mm -hmm. And, and that's the thing people can grow and change and, and really surprise you. And I, I love where this has ended up. I have ended up a better person. This person's ended up a better person. We, we both learned something from this experience and we're able to move forward. 
So, but just to follow up on that experience for a second, how much of that required you to get out of the parasocial world of online and into the in-person world of actually seeing each other face to face? Was that a component of that? There is something wonderful about being face to face. We had gotten friendlier on social media okay. for sure. We had we had definitely um, started to follow each other on social media again and had commented a little bit back and forth on each other's things. Nothing significant. But when I found out that the two of us were going to be at the same event, I actually sent a message and said, Hey, would you like to hang out with me? And you know, and and they got back to me and they were like you know, I was thinking the same thing before everything. We should definitely get together and chat. And it just turned into something wonderful. Readers coming to One Sunday Afternoon may already know that you yourself are a trans man. And that's just a tiny part of this book, though, literally. Like, it is tucked away, not just in the epilogue, but in the epilogue to the epilogue, which <laughs> is called Epilogue 2.0. But it's to me, it's an illustration of... Um, of just how much life stuff can happen between finishing a manuscript and finally getting it published. Uh, you pressed pause on the publication of this book for a month. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about that. I would love to talk about that because that in itself is a great story. Um, so I had figured out um, in the late winter, early spring that I was a man and I tried to deny it and deny it and deny it. that's that's of 2023 so the, and, and the book was coming out in August I ended up realizing that I needed to transition but my idea was I think it makes more sense because the manuscript is in, everything is in, everything is finalized. I've signed off on everything I signed off on, on the cover of the book and it has my old name on it. And so I just decided, well, I would, you know, I would just wait until after I toured the book and then I would come out as Rowan. And I had a wonderful conversation with my, uh, my, my, my literary agent, Samantha Haywood from Transatlantic. And Sam said to me, but Rowan, how does it feel every day to, and I, I'm not uncomfortable using my old name. So how, how does it feel every day to have to wake up as Rowan, go to work as Amanda and come back as Rowan and then amplify that when you're on tour and, and doing how many interviews and everything. Mm -hmm. And I said, honestly, it sounds terrible. <laughs> And she said, I think I, it, with your permission, I'm going to have a talk with your publisher, which is Penguin Random House Canada. And so she did. And they were wonderful. And they were like, yeah, you know what, Rowan, let's, I, we, we got it. We got to follow your lead. We, we need to center you in this. I mean, look what happened after the publication of your last book. We want to make sure you are good and solid and everything's going well. But they were, they were so supportive right away. And so not only did I have to, after the first draft of the book was in, go, oops, something happened. I have to write a follow-up chapter, which I did. And we just talked about that. But then I also had to write another short epilogue, <laughs> epilogue 2.0. I had to do that at the end as well. And that is, you know, that is in the digital and, and, uh, and you know, a version of the book. 
um, the the printed book still has my name on it. So has my old name on it. But that is just publishing, right? It does take two to three years often from the time that you start writing a book to the time you see it on a shelf. And that's the other thing about trauma, right? The, the other thing is that trauma is very layered. So you peel back layers. And as you heal, at least as I have, he- have healed, um, I have discovered new things about myself. And this is what I've discovered is that I am a man. Um, and my kids' first view was... Um, when I when I I came out to my kids and they kind of sat there and one of them said, "So um, are you are you going to start fishing? Are we, we going to go fishing? Or do we need a barbecue? Are you going to start barbecuing?" <laughs> and just just coming out with the jokes, right? That's my that's my family. Yeah. Thanks, kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so much of the crisis of this book was set off by who's allowed to speak for whom. You're still you. The people who criticized you are still who they are. Does your coming out as trans change how you feel or how you look at any of those events? Um, because, you know, on one hand, nothing's changed. And on the other hand, every, everything has changed. Yeah. So I have given this some thought. I think sometimes we we just tend, you know, I think all of us, for sure, we look at life through our lens. Now, when it comes to the trans experience, I have multiple lenses. I am trans myself. I have a child who is trans. I have a partner who is trans. I have a wife who transitioned, right? And so I, and I have many friends who are trans. And so I sort of have this perspective of being a parent, being a partner, and my and going through this myself. And because of that, I see the value in telling that story from all different angles. And I think sometimes we miss that, right? There are people who may not, you know, may say only trans people should talk about trans experiences. But right now we are seeing such an increase of, you know, um, targeted, you know, rollback of rights, you know, or attempted Mm -hmm. rollback of rights for trans students, young trans people. And who are parents going to listen to? They're very likely going to listen to other parents, right? So when I, when I speak about trans youth, I speak about it from the perspective of not just a trans person, but also a parent of a trans child and going through that with a child who is now 10 years almost into their transition and as happy as can be, right? So I, I think that story is, is extremely valuable. And so I will always support parents who want to speak up, you know, about what it's like to love their trans children and, 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 and support them. I'll always speak up for partners who want to do the same. I, you know, who, siblings and, and, and everybody, right? I think it's, it's so important. Rowan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I have been speaking with Rowan Jate Knox, author of the new memoir, One Sunny Afternoon. Find it and all the books we've spoken about at Kobo and Conversations, home on the web, kobo.com slash conversation. Check the show notes for a link. Subscribe in your podcast player to catch every episode. And if you enjoy this one, share it with someone who you'd happily spend a sunny afternoon with. Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me, Michael Tamlin. Thank you for listening.